This podcast is brought to you by the Alcuin Institute for Catholic Culture in the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. I wanted to say a word before we begin about what St. Thomas means to me personally. As I was growing up, I was a cradle Catholic, but going through high school was difficult. I mean, I had many people who were non-Catholics wanting to know what Catholics believed and why. And so for me, St. Thomas Aquinas, as the fulfillment in some way of the fathers of the church who reflected on Revelation uh, in a more kind of immediate way, you know, they're closer to the writings of the apostles. St. Thomas takes from East and West, from reason and from faith, and he puts together this brilliant theological uh, synthesis. And so for me, that was very compelling to me as a teenager because I didn't want to check my brain at the door, as it were, as a Catholic. I wanted to say, no, what I know from reason, I can incorporate and bring to my experience of faith. So for the Catholic, when faith comes on the scene, it perfects and lifts reason up. It doesn't negate it or undermine it. And so I think that was perhaps the most compelling thing for me when I was younger, reflecting on the life and work of St. Thomas Aquinas. So that's what I'd like to talk about today is this great um, 13th century Dominican theologian. And St. Thomas Aquinas is given several names by the church. He is called angelic doctor, first of all, because of his angelic purity and holiness and because of his profound theological reflections on angels. He is also called common doctor because there exists in his theology and philosophy the capacity to serve the whole church. Finally, St. John Paul II called St. Thomas the doctor humanitatis, the doctor of humanity, because St. Thomas takes the best of human learning and wisdom and puts it at the service of the gospel, which means ultimately to put it at the service of the entire human race. John Paul II thought, as I do, that St. Thomas has much to teach us even today. And this is actually something of a controversial point because some people think, what could a 13th century monk have to teach me living in the 21st century, working in, you know, computer science or what have you? What does he have to teach me? But I assure you, and I've learned this more profoundly over time, that the ancients, the medievals, those who have gone before us have much to teach us, and we would uh, really benefit from their learning. But in addition to these lofty titles that St. Thomas has, it would not be inappropriate to call St. Thomas the doctor of the Eucharist, or the Eucharistic doctor. And indeed, um, Pope Pius XI calls him precisely that in his 1923 encyclical Studiorum Ducem. As an example of St. Thomas's Eucharistic piety, it may be known to many of you that he composed, at the direction of Pope Urban IV, the text of the liturgical office for the Feast of Corpus Christi. So in the Catholic tradition, we have this beautiful feast of the body and blood of the Lord, in which we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. And so Pope Urban IV commissioned St. Thomas to write prayers for this feast. Pope Benedict XVI recalls this in a 2010 general audience as follows, quote, Urban IV, as one of the greatest theologians of history, St. Thomas Aquinas, 
who at that time was accompanying the Pope and was in Orvieto, which is a small town, I think north, maybe a little northwest of Rome, situated on a, on a, on a kind of rock structure, a cliff. A very beautiful place. So Urban tells him to compose the text of the liturgical office for this great feast. They are masterpieces, still in use in the church today, in which theology and poetry are fused. These texts pluck at the heartstrings in an expression of praise and gratitude to the most holy sacrament, while the mind, penetrating the mystery with wonder, recognizes in the Eucharist the living and real presence of Jesus, of a sacrifice of love that reconciles us with the Father and gives us salvation. It's precisely this aspect that I hope to draw out in this talk, namely the fusion or marriage of theology and poetry in St. Thomas's prayers for Corpus Christi. I hope to show you the profundity and precision of a speculative account of the Holy Eucharist while seeing how the angelic doctor expresses these truths liturgically. In order to do this, I suggest we look at part of his pange lingua, which means something like sing tongue. It's an exhortation for the for the tongue to sing and praise God. And this Pange Lingua was written, as I said, for the Feast of Corpus Christi. This will include a portion of the Tantum Ergo, which you might be familiar with if you have gone to adoration and benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. St. Thomas wrote the Pange Lingua sometime during his stay in Orvieto, which lasted from 1261 to 1265. So what I want to do is read two different English translations of this text. I, I suppose we could look at the Latin text, and that would be valuable and good, but you know, not everyone is up to snuff with their Latin, including me sometimes. So let's look at two English translations that will hopefully um, draw out what St. Thomas is saying. One's more poetic, uh, and one's more kind of literal in its translation. So let's examine the first stanza first. Not the first stanza of the Pange necessarily, but the first one we want to examine tonight says the following. On the night of that last supper, seated with his chosen band, he, the paschal victim eating, first fulfills the law's command, then as food to all his brethren, gives himself with his own hand. Beautiful. Let's read the second one. Second translation, on the night of the Last Supper, reclining with his brethren, once the law had been fully observed with the prescribed foods, as food to the crowd of twelve, he gives himself with his own hands. The stage is set here for the institution of the Holy Eucharist and the priesthood that is charged with celebrating the Eucharistic sacrifice in memory of Christ until he comes again. Our Lord chose to institute the sacrament during the Passover, a feast begun when the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. And I'm sure most of you recall the story. Ready to execute judgment on Pharaoh and the false Egyptian gods with the tenth plague, which would kill not only the firstborn among human beings, but the firstborn even of livestock, God commands the Hebrew people to roast a year-old lamb and to eat it together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They were also to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lentils of their houses so that the angel of death might pass over them and only afflict those who were not faithful to God and his commandments. There were more prescriptions related to this seven-day feast, of course, but these are the basics. It was to be celebrated by those who were circumcised, who were part of God's covenant family. 
Our Lord's disciples, of course, would have been aware of this event in salvation history and many others, all fulfilled in their own manner and Jesus' sacrifice and the sacrament of that sacrifice, which is the Holy Eucharist. St. Thomas, too, is keenly aware of the whole of salvation history. And so when he speaks about the Eucharist in his Summa Theologiae, which is perhaps his most famous work, although he wrote many scriptural commentaries, commentaries on Aristotle, um, sermons, all kinds of things. But this is his most famous work. He argues that the Paschal Lamb was the chief figure of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Now, what is a figure? What does he mean by figure? Well, often in biblical theology, we talk about a figure or type as a person, a place, a thing, an event in the Old Testament that points beyond itself to some future reality and fulfillment in the new. So St. Thomas thinks that the Paschal Lamb was the chief or, or primary or highest, the greatest figure or type of the Holy Eucharist. And again, not the only figure, but the greatest. And in good old Aquinas fashion, he makes distinctions and draws out the different ways that Old Testament types are fulfilled in the Eucharist. If we consider what in theology we call the sacramentum tantum, and I know this can be difficult terminology, but by that I mean the sacramental elements themselves, you know, that which is a sign of some further reality, which in the case of the Eucharist is the bread and wine. If we consider the sacramentum tantum, we can obviously look to the sacrifice of Melchizedek. Why? Well, think of the biblical account. He offers bread and wine as a priest king of God most high, as we read in Genesis and the letter to the Hebrews. With respect to what is called the res at sacramentum, that which is both a reality and a sign of some further reality, it's kind of like the most proximate effect of the sacrament, you might say, which in the case of the Eucharist is Christ crucified, we have the various sacrifices carried out in the old law, but especially the sacrifice of expiation carried out on Yom Kippur, this day of atonement. Finally, the res tantum, or the final effect of the sacrament, the thing to which the sacrament is ultimately ordered, which is really the grace that we receive in the sacrament, or the upbuilding of the body of Christ, the unity of the mystical body, as St. Thomas will say. If we consider that, well, we can consider the manna in the desert. The manna in the desert was given to the Hebrew people so that they might be preserved and sustained while on their sojourn. Think about the words we say during benediction concerning the Eucharist. It is bread from heaven, having all sweetness within it. These words were originally said of the manna. Just as manna has the sweetness of every taste, St. Thomas says, so does the grace of the Holy Eucharist refresh the soul in every way. But notice, says St. Thomas, that the Paschal Lamb foreshadowed the Eucharist in all three ways. First of all, it was eaten with unleavened bread, as we saw with the offering of Melchizedek. Second, the spotless lamb was also sacrificed by the entire people of Israel. And this was a figure of the passion of Christ, who is called the lamb on account of his innocence. Think about the various texts in the New Testament where, whether in Revelation or uh, in, in John's Gospel, for instance, or wherever, where Jesus is called the lamb of God. John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the lamb of God. And we say these words during Mass, of course. 
Finally, the blood of the Paschal Lamb saved the children of Israel from the destroying angel and delivered them from Egyptian captivity, just as Christ's blood saves us from sin and death and brings us to the heavenly homeland. When St. Thomas is writing the words of the Pange Lingua, therefore, which speak of Jesus instituting the Eucharist after fulfilling the law of Passover, all of this is in his mind, the whole of salvation history and how the Holy Eucharist comes to fulfill what had gone before. The twelve apostles themselves fulfilled the sons of Israel and the twelve tribes they would establish. Jesus is reconstituting Israel through the sacrifice of his body and blood. Recall the last line of the first stanza as well, which is quite striking. Jesus gives himself with his own hand. Jesus himself is the new covenant in person, as it were, and he gives himself to us without reserve in the Holy Eucharist. All right, so let's move on to the next stanza. And again, I want to read two different translations, one more poetic and one more kind of literally translated. Word made flesh the bread of nature, by his word to flesh he turns. Wine into blood he changes. What though sense no change discerns, only be the heart in earnest, faith her lesson quickly learns. And here's the more literal translation. The word as flesh makes true bread into flesh by a word, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. And if sense is deficient to strengthen a sincere heart, Faith alone suffices. Notice the symmetry here, and this is even more evident and powerful in the Latin text. Jesus, of course, is the Word made flesh. Think of texts like John 1.14. And now that Word made flesh takes bread and by a word makes it into his own flesh. He changes wine into his blood. But he does this in a peculiar way, without the appearances of bread and wine ceasing to be. The substance changes, but the accidents remain. We owe the articulation of what we call in the Catholic tradition transubstantiation in large part to St. Thomas. So it will be worth looking at how he explains things, which, as usual, um, is quite precise theologically and always based in Scripture and tradition. St. Thomas says, first of all, that it was fitting that Christ be in the sacrament in very truth— and not merely in a figure or sign. In other words, the Eucharist is not merely a sign of Christ's body, though it is. It is Christ's body itself. So why is this fitting or appropriate for St. Thomas? He says that it is a fitting or appropriate for the perfection of the new law, since the sacrifices of the old law contain Christ's passion only in figure. The new law sacrifice, therefore, which is the Holy Eucharist, should contain Christ's passion in a higher, more perfect way. Here, the angelic doctor is relying on the biblical principle that the old law is like a shadow of the new law. Think of the words of Hebrews 10, 1, quote, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Christ's sacrifice, on the contrary, offered once for all, has the power to perfect all who draw near. And we draw near to that very sacrifice in the Holy Eucharist. Because the sacrament of the altar, like the other sacraments of the new law, affect, 
bring about, what it signifies, Christ and his sacrifice are really present. But how can it be that what appears by all sensory data to be bread and to be wine is the body and blood of Christ? St. Thomas uses his understanding of substance and accidents appropriated from a figure like Aristotle in order to explain this. As Aristotle relates in the metaphysics, there are different ways in which a thing can be said to be. And I think this is intuitive. This is common sense. Substance is being existing in itself, whereas accident is being existing in another as its subject. So consider me, right? Consider um, me. I'm a substance. I'm a kind of thing. I'm a human being. I'm, I'm Aaron, of course. But I also have a hair color. My hair is a certain length. It's a certain color. My eyes are a certain color. I'm a certain height, etc. Or consider Socrates. He's a substance because he exists in himself. But the whiteness of Socrates' beard is an accident because it only exists in as much as it inheres in a substance, and in this case, Socrates. In the case of the Holy Eucharist, the substance of bread is changed by divine power through the instrumentality of the priest into the body of Christ. The wine, likewise, with those very words of institution spoken by Jesus, is transformed into Christ's precious blood. This is something, of course, that can only be brought about by divine power, and I really want to emphasize that. While the appearances remain, the substance of bread and the substance of wine is no more, not as though annihilated or dissolved, but miraculously transformed into the substance of Christ's body and blood. And thus, even when senses fail to pierce the mysterious veil, faith suffices. Faith, therefore, has the power to strengthen the heart and to penetrate, however imperfectly, the veil that hides the person of Christ substantially present. All right, we come now to the last stanza I want to consider today, which again, you have heard if you have ever attended Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. This is the first stanza of the Tantum Ergo. Down in adoration falling, lo, the sacred host we hail, lo, or ancient forms departing, newer rites of grace prevail, faith for all defects supplying when the feeble senses fail. And here's, a, here's another translation. Therefore, the great sacrament let us reverence, prostrate, and let the old covenant give way to a new rite. Let faith stand forth as substitute for defect of the senses. What I would like to emphasize with this stanza is, first, that the sacrament, because it contains Christ in very substance, in very truth, as St. Thomas said, ought to be adored. Second, St. Thomas here highlights the superiority of the new law sacraments over the sacraments of the old law. Maybe you never knew there were sacraments of the old law, so this might be interesting to talk about. But let's talk about adoration first. Perhaps as Catholics, we take it for granted as when we say we're going to adoration. It's become a very common term. But what precisely does adoration mean? And can we really apply the term to how we treat the Eucharist? For St. Thomas, as for the entire Christian tradition, God is deserving of holy, unique praise and honor, worthy of an adoration that we cannot justly give to any creature, no matter how lofty. 
This is the adoration of latria. So when we talk about worship, that's perhaps a more common word even than adoration. Worth, uh, worship is about worthship. So we give worship to something in accord with its worthiness. So we, we adore God. We give God this absolutely unique worship, worthship, that in the Christian tradition, in the Catholic tradition especially, we call latria. Again, we give this kind of adoration to God alone. Affording any creature latria would be a grave violation of the first commandment. Before even getting into his discussion of the Eucharist, St. Thomas argues that Christ's humanity and Godhead are to be adored with the same adoration. But how can this be? Well, simply put, Jesus is one person, one subject, despite the fact that he has two natures, divine and human. Granted, if we speak about the grace and Christ's human soul or something like this, we would afford that not latria, but but dulia, this, this lower form afforded creatures. But again, when speaking about the person or subject adored, since there is but one person in Christ, there is likewise one adoration. The same logic applies when we begin to think of um, the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And indeed, think about when we call Mary the Mother of God. You know, the Council of Ephesus in 431, when it's it's debating this term, Mother of God, it's not ultimately about Mary, it's about Christ. He is one person. And so mothers, because they don't give birth to natures, but to persons, Mary can rightly and ought rightly to be called Mother of God. And so the same logic applies in the Eucharist when we begin talking about the Blessed Sacrament. And here again, I think we see the consequences of the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. The substance of bread and wine is no more, having been miraculously transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Consequently, because Christ is truly and substantially present on the altar, we ought to adore the blessed sacrament. What about the newer rites of grace prevailing over the rites of old? Here we may point to St. Thomas's rich understanding of the economy of salvation as sacramental through and through. It may surprise you to find out that even in the Old Covenant there were sacraments, by which, as St. Augustine says, we mean signs of sacred things. One such sacrament was circumcision. When it is given to Abraham, God presents it as a sign of the covenant he makes with Abraham. It is to mark the children of Israel set apart for God. Circumcision allowed entrance into God's covenant people and access to all the promises associated with the covenant, land, freedom from enemies, descendants, and the rest. But while circumcision may have been a sign of faith and a kind of anticipation of the coming Savior, it could not of itself communicate grace and save the person circumcised. This is why St. Paul everywhere says things like, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Or again, consider these words. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. He will say in Colossians that baptism is the new circumcision, the circumcision of Christ. And unlike circumcision of old, baptism joins us to the death and resurrection of Christ and forgives our sins. It is not the sign of some future Messiah, but of one who has already come and who, in fact, works in the sacrament. 
The New Testament sacraments, whether baptism or the loftiest sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, affect or bring about what they signify. The water of baptism, Augustine says, in touching the body, cleanses the heart. It is true, in a sense, that baptism replaces circumcision. But I think it's better, perhaps, to think of the New Testament and its sacraments as superabundantly fulfilling the Old Testament and its sacraments. The Latin term St. Thomas uses here is chedot. The, the old rites yield to or give way to the new rites. The latter are more efficacious, more powerful, more meaningful. But, as the last line makes clear, it is only through faith that we discover the real power of the Eucharist, since Christ is hidden under the appearances of bread and wine. Faith, therefore, St. Thomas writes, serves as a necessary supplementum, a supplementum, for the failing of the senses to penetrate the sacramental veil. Now, when he says that the, the senses defect in some ways or they fail, it doesn't mean the senses aren't acting as they should, right? They're supposed to pick up on sensible realities. But because the appearances of bread and wine remain, they can't penetrate the sacramental veil. That's left to faith. All right. Now, of course, there are many more things that could be drawn out from St. Thomas's Pange Lingua and from his Eucharistic theology more generally. But I hope what I've drawn out tonight convinces you that St. Thomas was a man deeply in love with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Indeed, some of St. Thomas's last words were said to be, Most sacred body, price of my soul, viaticum, which is, you know, a food for the journey, viaticum of my pilgrimage, for love of thee, my Jesus, I have studied, preached, taught, and lived. My days, my sighs, my labors were all for thee. So when you reflect on the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, and I think you should, say a prayer of thanksgiving, first to our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, secondly, perhaps to Our Lady, who, who through her fiat, through her uh, obedient yes, um, allowed Christ to come into the world, and thirdly, to St. Thomas, for expressing in such a profound manner, whether theologically or poetically, the mystery of Christ's body and blood. Thank you. Follow and subscribe in your podcast app for updates and notifications when new content is released. And thank you for listening. Together, our faith goes further. <laughs>